successful in 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg, the 1st Minnesota Volunteers Regiment, which was called the 1st Minnesota because they were the very first people to volunteer after President Lincoln um, declared war, well, this regiment was decimated during a desperate attempt to buy time for the rest of the army to, um, you know, get the force ready. They, they were able to buy the precious few minutes and seconds, um, but most of the regiment died that day. Uh, the flag fell five times, but each time they managed to, to raise it again. Of their 262 members, uh, only 47 survived the three-day battle. But those 47 men were held in great esteem because of their valor and their ability to continue raising their flag, and especially um, their amazing, almost miraculous feat of being able to defeat the 28th Virginia Volunteers and capture their flag. So, you know, capturing the flag is a sign that you have defeated them. And they took the flag. It was considered a miraculous accomplishment. And that flag was taken home to Minnesota as a trophy of war and has been in the Minnesota Historical Society for well over a century. Well, in June uh, of 2000, the Virginia Senate passed a resolution that they would officially request the return of their flag. So they asked Minnesota, you've had it now for all these years, can we please have our flag back? Everybody was kind of wondering, what are they going to do? What's Minnesota going to do? I mean, are they going to say no? Are they going to say yes, but on one condition? Are they going to ask for something in return, some sort of ransom or some sort of declaration that they were the victors? What would they do? Well, they said no, <laughs> quite undiplomatically. The governor at the time, Jesse the body Ventura, if you remember him. This is his quote. Tell them to come and get it. We won the flag, and to the victor go the spoils. Not very diplomatic. I mean, apt for a wrestler, but maybe not for a governor. But So that, this continued. There, there was an official request again in 2003. The, the request was denied again. Um, and then in 2013, the governor of Virginia asked if they could just borrow the flag for a particular ceremony that they wanted it, promising to return it. And at that point, Minnesota said, no, <laughs> they wouldn't even lend it to them. Uh, to this day, the flag is kept in a hidden compartment somewhere in the Minnesota Historical Society, but for security reasons and for fear that the Virginians will come and get it, um, it's actually hidden and kept there as a spoil of war to this day. And you kind of have to ask the question like, what is the point of that? What's going on there? I mean, these people are all in the same country. They're all on the same team. The Civil War is over. So what is it about human nature that wants the flag back? I mean, who cares? We don't need it anymore. And what is it about human nature that doesn't want to give it back? I mean, who cares if it wasn't ours to begin with? And the answer is pride. There is a state pride involved in the possession of that flag. And that's exactly what we're going to see in today's text. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel. Judges chapter 12. You'll remember the the context here in the book of Judges, um, this is after yet another season of Israel's uh, worshiping false gods where God allows foreign enemies to invade. 
and uh, to oppress them to the point that they become repentant and they cry out to Yahweh to deliver them. And the way he responds to that repentance is to raise up a judge. And, and this is a cycle throughout the book of Judges. The days when the judges ruled is the days that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we see a, a, a downward spiral, this, this uh, disintegration into moral chaos and spiritual darkness. And what we saw last week was really the epitome of that. We've, we've reached a low point um, in Israel's history where the judge, Jephthah, makes a bargain with God, something that was common to do with foreign gods um, and idols, but something that Yahweh had really prohibited uh, in the law of Moses was child sacrifice. And Jephthah makes this rash vow that what, if you give me the battle, if you give me the victory, whatever comes out of my house first, I will offer it to you as a burnt offering. And of course, when he comes back, it's his daughter. And so we looked at that and we saw that just the, the, the agony of the decision, do I keep my vow to the Lord or do I, and, and sacrifice my daughter, or do I break my vow to the Lord and keep my daughter? Well, it wasn't really even a discussion. He just said, well, I've made this vow, I have to keep it. And she thought he was doing the right thing too. And so we looked at some depths over two weeks of don't make rash vows. That's our first application point. Go back in time and undo what you did. <laughs> Secondly, if you do make a, a rash vow, you need to stop sinning. That's the basic principle in life. If you're not sure what to do, the answer is don't sin. So if you've done something to put yourself in a position to keep that vow, you're going to sin one way or the other. You need to just stop. Stop digging the hole. He should have not sacrificed his daughter and taken whatever consequence God gave him for breaking the vow rather than add another sin to that. Okay, but it illustrates for us just the, the desperation of the people and how lost they are without God's word, which makes our morning series so valuable because you've got the snapshot of normal life, this little biosphere, this little enclosure of godly people um, in the midst of this. But Jephthah is not in that biosphere. Now, just a reminder that's helpful to remember about Jephthah himself, the reason God chose him to raise him up as a judge is because of his background. He uh, was a Gileadite. He was a son of a man named Gilead. So the region named after his father, but he was an illegitimate son. So when Gilead dies and the, the sons want to split up the inheritance, they exclude him and say, well, no, you were the son of a prostitute, so you don't count, you don't get anything, they reject him, they chase him off. He learns to live in the wilderness, he gets a group of freedom fighters, you know, guerrilla fighters around him, and he becomes a military force that they then need to help uh, expel the Ammonites. And so they call him, and God, you know, he points out how ironic that you kick me out until you need something from me. And this is exactly what God had said to them too. How ironic that you call for me to deliver you after you rejected me. Why don't you call out to your gods? And so he uses his diplomacy and he bargains from going to just the commander of the army to chief of the entire region. And they say, yes, we'll give you that. And so he goes, he wins, he gets the victory. Then we saw the thing with his daughter happen. And that's where we find ourselves. Now there is a follow-up. There is a, a fallout to this battle that they had, and that's what we're going to learn about tonight, where we see pride, prejudice, and passwords come to bear. Let me read for you from verse 1 to verse 7. Judges chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to him, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. 
And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand, and I crossed over against the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the many of men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Just an interesting little fallout after this. The main thing you need to know here is that Ephraim is a tribe of Israel. So these are all Israelites that are now fighting each other. It's kind of like a, a, a mini civil war between these groups. They should have been on the same side. The war is over. They've been delivered. Everyone should just kind of give back each other's flags and, and go back to business. But now Ephraim has a bone to pick with Jephthah. And so we're going to look tonight at three shibboleths so you will recognize pride in your own life. Three shibboleths. So you can see that the, the English word shibboleth is an act, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's an English word. It comes from this passage. The shibboleth is a, um, a code word. Uh, a test to see if somebody is genuine or not. That's what the English word shibboleth means, and it comes from this passage, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail later. But we're going to have three kind of uh, exposures to show you your pride so you recognize it in your own life. Firstly, the shibboleth of preeminence. Secondly, personal offense. And thirdly, prejudice. So let's look at preeminence. This is one of the, the ways you can tell that you are are struggling with the sin of pride is if you desire to be preeminent among other people. You don't like other people to get the glory. You don't like other people to get the credit. You want the credit. And so we see this in verse 1 where the men of Ephraim were called to arms. They crossed to Zephon and they said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. I mean, these guys aren't messing around. Ephraim is one of the preeminent tribes in Israel. Uh, he, Ephraim was a, a son of Joseph. Remember that there's 12 tribes of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, but one of the tribes, um, Levi, didn't get any land because he split up among his people. The Levites live among the people. But they still have 12 territories because Joseph, there's no real tribe of Joseph. The tribe of Joseph is split into two half-tribes. The half-tribe of um, Manasseh and Ephraim here are Joseph's tribes, basically. And so they're prestigious tribes. Ephraim is a large tribe. It has a large population. They have a military background. If you're going to go to war, these are the people that you're going to call. And they didn't call them. Jephthah took care of it by himself. He's just like a no-name guy. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't really have any major allegiance to a tribe. He's, him and his merry men are off in Nottingham Forest, you know, and, and they get called in by the Gileadites, and he just does it. Like, Jephthah is, is this military leader. He's got this band of warriors. Even though it's a, a small force, he has God on his side. 
because he's been raised up to, to deliver them. And he has this great faith in God, which is why he is included in the great hall of faith in the book of Hebrews, because the one thing Jephthah had is an unshakable faith that God was more powerful than the Ammonites. And so that's why God used him, and sure enough, he, he is victorious. And now the Ephraimites come, and they throw their toys out the cot because they weren't invited to the party. So now Jephthah gets all of the glory, and they get none of it. And they're saying, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you call us? We're right here. This is our land. Why didn't you call us and Manasseh? We would have come. We would have fought with you. And Jephthah could have been diplomatic here. But he has this pride in his heart as well. So they have pride. He has pride. I mean, the, the, the victory that he accomplished was, was quite amazing. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 8, for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So for 18 years these people have been doing this and no one's been able to fight back. And verse 9 says, the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. So chapter 10 tells us Ephraim had their shot. Ephraim actually did go to war with the Amorites and they were defeated. And so now they really look like a bunch of sissies. That this little guy and his band of merry men can take the whole army, the one that we lost. And so they're just kind of, they're posturing here. There's nobody from Nowhereville shows up and wipes out the enemy force, capturing 20 cities with no help. It made the military tribes like Ephraim look pathetic. And we know why Jephthah was able to do that. Chapter 10, verse 32 tells us because Yahweh gave that victory to him. And so instead of praising God, which is what the Ephraimites should do, instead of rejoicing in their new freedom that they have, the new liberation that they didn't even have to risk their lives for, instead of doing that, they're sulking because they want to be the superior tribe. They want the preeminence. You know that song, You're So Vain, you probably think the song is about you? That was Ephraim. You're so vain that you probably think this whole war is about you. You think everything's about you. How about God and God's glory and what God's doing here with Israel? Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace. And here we have this amazing victory, and instead of basking in it, there's about to be a civil war. And this isn't the first time Ephraim threw their toys out the cot because of this. Go back to Judges chapter 8. This happened with Gideon too. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, said to Gideon, after Gideon chased away the Midianites with his force of little, you know, he had those 300 men. Um, what is this that you've done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he, Gideon, said to them, and he's so diplomatic here, he's so humble, he says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So Gideon, he played it cool. He was just humble. Ephraim, same thing. How come you didn't invite us to come and do this? And Gideon doesn't point out, listen, you've had a whole bunch of years to do this. You weren't able to, so me and my 300 men got the job done. He doesn't say that. He says, look, 
you guys have done so much in history. This was just like a little thing that needed to be done. And like, we wouldn't need to call in the cavalry. We don't, it would have been an overkill because you guys are so great with what you've done. This would be like sending in a Navy SEAL team to clean the latrines. I mean, we wouldn't need that. We're the lowly ones. We were just doing a little mop-up here of the Midianites. You did the real deliverance. And the Ephraimites are like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll let everything subside. And that diplomacy diffuses things. Now, Jephthah, on the other hand, and if you go back to chapter 12, he doesn't do that. He doubles down and starts yelling at them and basically saying, who do you think you are? You, you weren't able to do this at all. Um, and, and gets in their face. And that's what causes the, the war. He says, um, you know, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. Like, you couldn't even do this. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over the Jordan against the Ammonites. So he, he basically says, look, we, we, you were welcome to show up at any time, but you weren't able to do it, so we just went ahead without you. So for now, let me ask you this. Are you like Ephraim? Are you ever in a place where you feel, how come I'm the one that's not getting the credit here? I could have done that. How come they asked this person to serve in that way when I'm the person that's actually better at that? How come they asked his opinion or her opinion on this thing when this is what I do for a living? Well, how come I wasn't the one that was enlisted into this ministry? Don't they know my years of capability and my prowess in this area? And maybe it was an oversight or maybe there's a character issue there like pride that people are aware of that you aren't. Or whatever the reason is, why aren't you just rejoicing that the work's getting done? Why aren't you thankful that, that God's glory is is uh, having somebody willing to, to minister to him. No, 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 it must be me. I must be the one to get the credit. We saw this the other day in our Wednesday night service, didn't we? In Luke, where, they, um, where the disciples are, they, they see other people casting out demons in Jesus' name, and, and they, they tell them to stop, and they go back to Jesus. And they say, Lord, we saw someone casting out Jesus, uh, demons in your name, and we made them stop. <laughs> And remember, it's like Jesus saying, hold on, were they putting demons into people? No. Were they charging to, to cast out the demons? No. It's like, then what's your problem? They're on our team. If they're for you, if they're, they're not against you. He says, um, Jesus said, do not stop him for the one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. This is how you achieve harmony. When you, you see the bigger picture, you see the glory of God, you see the plan of God's redemption, what he's doing, and you just want the goal. You don't care who does it. Romans 12 verse 15 gives us a very practical way of tackling this if it ever comes up. Whenever someone else is being honored and you feel like it should be you, just remember Romans 12 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be conceited. There's so many, there's so many commands packed into that. But empathize with other people. And if they're rejoicing, rejoice with them. Don't be sulky. And don't be haughty. Don't think of yourself more highly. Don't be conceited thinking of yourself more highly than others. But associate with the lowly. So the solution is to be humble. And then you won't want to be preeminent. 
Let's look at the second shibboleth of pride. The first is preeminence. The other one is personal offense. If you want just one word there, you could use the word peak. P-I-Q-U-E. That's what it means. Peak is when something offends you personally. Verse 2, Jephthah, you see his peak here. I, look, look at for all of the personal pronouns. Look at who he's referring to most in this little speech. I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah agreed all the men of Gilead, sorry, gathered all the men of Gilead and they fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. I've told you before about the me monster. Sometimes the me monster comes out in our home where there's someone dominating the conversation. And no matter what happens, you always want to talk me, 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 you know, and then we all do this, me monster. And it never happens with me, of course, but um, no, no one has to point that out to me that I'm dominating the conversation. But you see this here with Jephthah. The, the Ephraim's trying to make this whole thing about them. They want the preeminence. And Jephthah, he is so wrapped up in himself and his own pride that he's taking this whole thing very, very personally. And this is no longer about God's glory. It's no longer about Israel and what we did for Israel. It's not even about the men who went with him who all risked their lives too. It's all about me. Hey, listen. I had to do this. I had to risk my neck for this. I did this. I did that. God chose me. God gave this to me. So you back off. So he does the exact opposite of what Gideon did. Gideon kind of appeases them. And Jephthah's like, no way. Or sometimes when things are getting heated with my two boys, one of them will say to the other one, you want to go? You want to go? That means you want to go outside and fight, and then, everything, <laughs> then dad steps in. But that's kind of what's going on here. He's saying to to Ephraim saying, how did you do this? And Jephthah, instead of saying, yeah, you're right, I'm so sorry, he said, you want to go? You want to go? Okay. And then they start a fight, and they actually attack each other. So now you've got Israelites attacking Israelites to the glory of God? No, because of personal offense. What was the reason that, that, that drove Jephthah to do this? Because he was insulted. Verse 4, Jephthah gathered the men of Gilead to fight with Ephraim. Why? Why did they strike Ephraim? Because they said... You were fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. They insulted them. You're, you're just, you're hanging out here in our land, the Ephraimites and the Manassites, you know, and you're here among us, but you're just, you're just fugitives. I'll show you fugitive. I'll make you a fugitive, you know, and then they start fighting and, and ends up killing 42,000 of God's people after they just won the war. And so again, this is a new low point in Israel's history. This is the first time this has happened. Never have Israelites raised sword against Israelites. God was using the, the outside nations, you know, the Moabites and the Amorites and the um, Midianites, and we're going to see soon the Philistines, to judge Israel. But now they're judging themselves cannibalism. What about you? Do you take attacks personally? Do you kind of miss the point of what's 
what's actually going on and what's important in the church, what's important in the kingdom of God, and you just focus on like, well, this person said this thing to me. And instead of just letting it go, you harp on it and you let it fester and you become bitter and you gossip about it and, you, and conflict arises. When you think, what's the goal? The goal is unity of the church to the glory of Christ. The whole body working together. But now, this little piggy said something to that little piggy, you know, this little toe offended that little toe, and now the toes are fighting, and now the body can't walk right. Because people are fighting within the body, missing the whole point. We saw this in our Philippian series, didn't we, where, where Paul has to write in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to get along with each other in the Lord, to have the same mind. Stop fighting amongst yourselves. It's ruining the reputation of the church. Don't take attacks on you personally. And, and whatever you do, when you're at work, this is going to happen to you at some point. Someone at work is going to say something about you because you're a Christian. Now, they might not say it because you're a Christian, but because of decisions you make and because of attitudes you have or viewpoints that you have, or, or maybe just because of the success you're having because of your Christian work ethic or whatever it is, there'll be something about, about you that you would not have if you were not a believer. And that thing is going to raise the peak of the people in your office. And they're going to gossip about you or mock you or there may be some sort of persecution or who knows, it might be even more serious than that. And Jesus warns us that when persecution comes to you because of his name, don't take it personally. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, friends, listen carefully, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is a promise in God's word. That if you follow Jesus, you're going to get into trouble. So don't act surprised when you get into trouble. And whatever you do, don't take it personally. This isn't about you. It's not you that they're rejecting. In fact, they would love you and accept you and praise you and rope you in if you denied Christ and didn't care what Christ thought about what you do or say or think. And so we just often are going to be given that choice. Choose what Jesus wants or choose what the world wants. And Jesus said, listen, I chose you out of that group that has the wrong view and the wrong belief and the wrong practices and the wrong morals and the wrong idolatry, the, the wrong worship of the wrong gods. I chose you out of that. And I gave you grace and I gave you the Holy Spirit and I gave you a new heart and I gave you new thoughts with new attitudes and new desires and new kingdom rules to live by and a new hope and a new inheritance. So, of course, they're going to hate you. That's just the price. They hated me. And Jesus is somebody, he's like the one person in the universe who gets to like the preeminence. What with being God and all. He is the one person that the world actually does revolve around. And yet Philippians 2 tells us, have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself. He didn't consider the equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a, a servant. And you're better than him? Of course not. A good example of somebody who didn't think too highly of himself because he was so busy thinking of Jesus is John the Baptist. 
he's, a, he's such a model of true greatness. John, in John chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, if you ask somebody now, who are you, they're going to respond with some form of identification that narrows down some way that you identify yourself, right? So when somebody asks you who you are, the how you identify yourself tells you a lot about yourself. It tells people about you just, well, I am, and then you give your name. Do you include your title? Who are you? Oh, I'm Dr. So-and-so, okay? Or I'm from this place because you're proud of the place that you're from. Or, or what, and not all of that's always wrong, but you give somebody your name, you give them the place that you come from, you, if it's in the right context, you might say what family you're associated with or something like that. No, this is what I do for a living. This is who my identity is. Who is John? Well, let's think about it. John is a prophet, the greatest prophet, the prophet that was chosen to usher in the Messiah. He's an actually important guy in the grand scheme of things. He was predicted by the prophet um, Malachi in the Old Testament. He was, his birth was announced by an angel. Okay, so he's not like your kids. He's, he's an important kid. And he grows up, and he gets asked, who are you? And he responds, not by who he is, what he's done. He only responds by what he's not. He says, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> so who are you, John? All you need to know about me is, I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. Everything else is about Jesus, and it's not me. That's all you really need to know about me. I'm not the Christ. And they keep asking him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said, well, then who are you? Give us something positive. Stop telling us what you're not. It's like me coming up to you and saying, hi, who are you? And you say, well, I'm not the president. I'm not the vice president. And you start just going down. I'm not this congressman. I'm not that senator. I'm not this. I'm not the council. I'm like, okay, but this is going to take all day. Tell me who you are. And he said, because they're like, tell us who you are because we need to give an answer to those who sent us. Like, we don't care about this whole issue of yours. I just, I'm on the clock here. I just got to, my boss sent me. I don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. Just tell me who you are. Who do you, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He just goes, the, I'm just the one that was sent to make the way straight for Jesus. I'm nothing big. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Imagine we were all like that. Somebody tries to offend you, somebody insults you, oh, you're just a fugitive in the land of Ephraim. And you're like, I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't bug me. <laughs> it doesn't bug me. Because I don't care what you think about me. Um, when I was first saved, I was being discipled by my pastor, and, and I remember we were driving in a car, and he cut someone off in traffic by accident, and this person went ballistic and was like honking and chasing him down and everything. Eventually, he pulled over, and the guy gets out of his car like... And, and my pastor was a short guy. You know, he's like a little guy, and he's just standing there. And this guy's like yelling at him and cussing at him. And I remember this so clearly. He said to him, you're such an idiot. And my pastor said, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I'm, I'm sorry. And what I did was, was bad driving. And he just like diffused the whole, the guy like wanted to fight. You know, you want to go? <laughs> and Joel's just being like, no, I'm, I, I drove badly there. And he didn't make an excuse. I'm American, I'm used to driving on the other side of the road or anything like that. He was just like, no, you're right. And then, but I remember when he said, you're an idiot. Now, I happen to know 
that this pastor was one of the, the only people I knew that graduated from seminary with a 4.0 average. That just doesn't happen at, that, at the seminary. This, this guy is like the golden child of the seminary. He's like the highest grades. He's, he's every, te- every time I went there, like, ooh, you're from Joel's church. Wow, we have great expectations for you. I'm like, great. Um, and this guy called him an idiot. And you know, I just wanted to stand up. He's like, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, Joel's mind. So I asked him about it afterwards, and he was just like, whenever anybody insults me, I remember if they knew me better, they would have more ammunition for things that are bad about me. Like, whatever the person says about you is actually higher than what you really deserve. And if you can truly believe that about yourself, it'll make your whole life a lot easier. It'll make you a lot more pleasant to be around. Is it fun to be around people that everything you say, they take the wrong way? They're just super sensitive. They're just always offended. It's just not helpful to, to be one of those people, especially in the church. Let's move on to the third shibboleth. The first one is preeminence, wanting the credit for yourself. The second one is personal offense. Don't make everything about you. It's, if they insult you, it's actually more about Jesus. And finally, prejudice. In verse 5, the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. So remember the Jordan, if you picture the, the map of Israel... You've got the Sea of Galilee's little dot at the top. You've got the Dead Sea at the bottom. You've got a blue line in between. That's the Jordan. So everything uh, west of the Jordan towards the Mediterranean Sea, that's Israel. Everything east of the Jordan, that's called the Transjordan. Okay? And that's where Gilead is. Um, and that's a little section that they're in. And the Gileadites, Gileadites capture the, the part, as they're fighting with Ephraim, they capture this part of the river that you need to cross whether there's, there's torrents nearby and you can't walk through the torrents, like a, uh, what, what do we call them, uh, rapids. So there's rapids nearby that you can't cross. You have to go over this place. So they capture the part that you have to cross at and there's torrents nearby. So I keep using the word torrent because that's going to become relevant in a moment here. Um, and so they say to them, so when any fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead would say to them, are you an Ephrathite? And, sorry, an Ephraimite. And when he said no, they would say, well, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, because they could not pronounce it right. So they seized him and slaughtered him. And so they killed 42,000 Ephraimites. So Jephthah has been defeating armies since he's a teenager. Okay? He's good at what he does. The Ephraimites are all bark and no bite. They, they can't actually fight. So they think that oh, we're this big military thing. We're going to put you in your place. And, and Jephthah's guys are just killing them. They're just routing them. They get slaughtered and they get scattered. So now they get on the wrong side of the river and they have to come back. So to get back home, you've got to cross at this point. So the Gileadites is just waiting there. And anyone who wants to cross the river, they're like, okay, well, are you... A... Now they all look the same. Remember, these are all Israeli people. <laughs> so they're all, they all look the same. So how do you tell one another part? They all speak the same language. They all speak Hebrew. So they have this little anti-Ephraimite uh, border policy, and they play this deadly game of pronunciation password. Picture the scene. Oh, I'm, hi, I'm just going over. I just got to, oh, are you an Ephraimite? Because, you know, we're going to kill you if you are. I'm not, me? No, those bad Ephraimites. Okay, well, you see those torrents over there? Yeah? Just say the word torrent. Torrent. And then they cut their neck off, because Sibboleth means torrent. So they're asking, well, it could mean rye bread as well, but in the, it can also mean torrent, and I'm going with torrent because they're at a river. It doesn't make sense. Say the word rye bread, you know. Um, so they ask them to pronounce this word for rapids in the river, and they can't do it, so they kill them. 
So that's why we call a shibboleth a test that reveals the truth. Now, there's lots of these. I mean, you can just Google them. There's ton throughout history, there have been these shibboleths, like in the, the Latin American War of Independence, you've got the Spaniards coming in, um, and you've got the Colombians, and, and they, they kind of look the same. They all speak Spanish, but they, they pronounce certain words different. So if they caught somebody, they would say, say Francisco. And if you're from Colombia, you would say Francisco. And if you were from Spain, you would say Francisco. And then they would kill you. Um, <laughs> Because in Spain, you pronounce, you know, Castellano, Barcelona, right? Where's Nadia today? Anyway, so you, you pronounce Barcelona or Barcelona. There's, there's these little things, and you can tell those little things tell you where you're from. So um, in Australia, they say, you, you show them fish and chips, and they'll, in Australia, they pronounce it this way, fish and chips. And in New Zealand, it's fish and chips. So you might not know the difference between an Australian and New Zealander, but just ask them if they want fish and chips, and then they say, yeah, I'll have fish and chips. Then you know that they're from New Zealand. Um, when I was in, in Japan, so think about it, the Japanese language doesn't have a word that ends in a T. So I want you to think of like the word Toyota, Toyota, but try to say Toyota with ending it in a T. So I drive a, a Honda and you drive a Toyota. Like, it just doesn't roll off the tongue. So because of this, when I went to Japan and I introduced myself, my name is Clint. And they have no category for that name. So all of them, they look at me like, are you sure? And uh, my name is Clint. And then they would, Clinto. And I'd say, no, 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 Clint. Clinto. <laughs> sure, Clinto. Okay, my name is Clinto from now on. Like, they just couldn't do it. And I'm like... Just say what I'm saying. Just say Clint and then stop. Clint. Ah. You know, it's like, why not? So I, I wanted to illustrate to you because you might think, if I say to you, say shibboleth, and you know that your life depends on it, what are you going to say to me? Shibboleth. So you might think, why don't they just say shibboleth then? So I want to illustrate something to you that I've noticed about Americans. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask John to put a word on the screen in a moment, but before he does, I don't want you to see the spelling yet. There is an Afrikaans word, and I'm going to say it to you once, and I want you to say it back to me. I'm going to say it, so just say exactly what I say, okay? It's the word that means a yellow poisonous apple. You ready? Gheel gif apokie. Okay, say that. Okay, some of you aren't even trying. If I said, I will kill you if you get this word wrong, I'll say it one more time. Say, Gheel gif apokie. Okay, you're getting there, but I would kill you. Um, and you might say, well, let, let me see the spelling. Okay, throw up the word for us, John. The spelling's not going to help you. <laughs> There's the... Does that help at all? Okay, so if I say to you, say and it's right there in front of you, you're still not going to get it right. So I have a friend, you've met her, uh, some of you, Mariki van Straten. I asked her if I could use her today. and She says this happens all the time. So she comes here, and she'll introduce herself, and you'll say, what's your name? And she'll say, Mariki van Straten. And you'll say, Mariki van Straten. And she says, sure, why not? But that's not her name. Her name is, so I want you to try it, Mariki van Straten. Okay, so then why do you say van Straten? And uh, the reason is our brains are trained to put things into the linguistic categories we already have formed. Okay, you can take those words down so that people aren't just mesmerized the whole night. Thanks, John. 
so in South Africa, there's a, there's a word, it means valley. It's the word kloof. K-L-O-O-F. And everyone in the country knows how to pronounce the word kloof. But where we lived, there was a neighborhood right next to our neighborhood, and it was called kloof. Spelt the same. Now, everybody knows two O's next to each other in the Afrikaans language makes an uh sound, not an oo sound. In fact, Afrikaans doesn't have an oof sound. They don't have that in their language. So everyone in the country who comes there sees the signs and they'll say kloof, including myself. I mean, I, grew, I went to an Afrikaans school. I went to an Afrikaans um, uh, university. I, I can speak Afrikaans. So when I see it, I say kloof. But all of the locals there say kloof. So after we've lived there like 14 years, I finally get it right. And I'm, when somebody asks me, what is this word? I would say kloof. But then when someone comes from Pretoria or anyone else in the country, they're like convinced it's kloof. So even though I know that, I know the correct pronunciation, but I know that the locals choose the wrong pronunciation. If there was a civil war in our area and someone said to, wanted to test where I was from and they said, say kloof, they could even say the word to me. At the moment, I'm going to think, which one do they want me to say? Because are they testing if I know Afrikaans, because then I'll say kloof, or are they testing to see if I'm a local, because then I'll say kloof. So that's kind of what's going on here. For us, it's just like, just don't say shibboleth, you idiot. Look at all the dead bodies. Say shibboleth. But they don't actually know what's being tested here. This is just their word for a torrent. So the guy says, say kloof, and you're like, kloof, aha. And you're like, what? I said it. Because your brain tells you that you said the same thing. Your brain thinks you're saying Mariki van Straten, but it's not. You're saying Mariki van Straten. So that's what's happening here. These people say, say Shibboleth, they say Sibboleth, and they're like, what? Why is everyone looking at me like that? I said it, Sibboleth. That's what I said, right? No, and they kill him. So that's what's going on here. But what this boils down to is racism, pure and simple. I mean, it's even more narrow than racism. These people are of the same race. They're the same skin color, they're the same language, they're the same culture, they're the same religion, they're the same everything, but they're from slightly different areas, and you can only tell the difference by this one word. And yet that's enough. You're an enemy. And when we look at this, we can see how silly it seems. Isn't it obvious? This person's not an Ammonite. They're not a Midianite. They're not a Moabite. This is a person that worships the same God you do. This is a person called to the promised land. But because there's this thing going on, we will find reasons to divide. It's a human trait. We do this in the church too. We do this among Christians. We looked at that on Wednesday night. We do this all the time. You, always, you like you so much that you like other people who are like you. And so when you meet someone, the more they are like you, the more you like them. That's prejudice. That's pride. That is the idea of thinking that I'm so great that other people like me must be great too. And so you could be from the same country. You're from the United States, and you're from the same state. You're from Alabama, and you're from the same city. You're from Mobile, and you go to the same school. But one of you likes to wear navy and orange on game day, and the other one likes to wear crimson, and they're the enemy! <laughs> you know? It's like, come on. There's just something about us. We like our tribe. And as Christians, we need to break down that instinct to gravitate towards our tribe. 
we need to gravitate towards those who need Jesus, irrespective of their tribe, irrespective of their skin color or their culture or their language or what team they support or where they're from or any background that they have or any religion that they're in. If there's a person who needs Jesus, you, you need to focus on that person. They're not the enemy. They're in the mission field. And so that's the cure to prejudice. So the flag of the 28th Virginia Volunteers was captured by a specific soldier uh, named Private Sherman. And when Private Sherman died, um, at his funeral, they brought out the flag. This was his one claim to flame. He, fame. he was the guy that got the flag for Minnesota. And so at his funeral, they unfurled the flag as this symbol of his amazing feat of bravery in that moment. As we said, this flag is representing the really the, the pride of the victory. But when I, when I read that, I couldn't help but think, so here's a casket with this flag over it that represents this man's amazing feat in battle. There's nothing wrong with that. But my question is, I wonder how proud he was of that at that actual moment when he is being judged by his maker for all eternity, what do you take pride in then? When God says, why should I let you into heaven? And how many of us have that temptation to think, well, I did this great thing while I was on earth? Whether it's capturing a flag or starting a business empire or fathering many children or whatever it is, I did this great thing. I contributed to the church. I built this whatever. And none of that counts. None of that counts. It's, all, it's wonderful that we do these things here on earth, but it doesn't count for salvation. There's only one thing you can boast in, and that is the cross. The only thing you can be proud of, the only thing that you know, this is how I know for certain I'm going to go to heaven if I die tonight. It's not because of anything I did here on earth. It's because of something Jesus did on Calvary that he paid the price for my sins as a substitute for me, that he lived that perfect life, he pleased God perfectly in a way I never could, and he offered that righteousness as a free gift, and that's what I boast in, that grace, that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, not my own. Anything I bring to it is just a filthy rag. And if you place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, you can be 100% sure of your salvation now and in the next life. And yes, it's good for us to do great feats here on earth, but if you put any of your pride into those feats and who you are and what your identity is apart from Jesus Christ, you will be devastated on Judgment Day. And that is the shibboleth of pride. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, text that tells us this really crazy story of the low point of Israel's history of how they turned against each other, missing the big picture of being free from the oppression of foreign armies. And Lord, sometimes we miss the big, big picture too. We take things personally. We become proud of who we are or what we've done. And we completely forget that we are nothing without Jesus Christ. And so we declare to you, Lord Jesus, that we boast in you and you alone in your work on the cross we thank you for saving us from our sins. In your precious name, amen.